Welcome to The How of Business with Henry Lopez and David Begin, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here are your hosts. Welcome to The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and my guests today are Drs. Kim and Todd Saxton. Guys, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having us. We're excited to be here today. I appreciate it. Thanks for being on. Thanks for your patience from some, for some technical difficulties that we've had to work through, but, but we're here and I'm excited about this conversation. We're going to talk about their book, The Titanic Effect, which focuses on helping us successfully navigate the uncertainties, uncertainties that sink most small business startups. And I think whether you're looking to start a business or have an existing small business, a lot of times it's those uncertainties that can catch us and we have to think about beyond the obvious things that we prepare for in starting and running a business. You want to receive more information about the Howa business, including links to the show notes pages for this episode, just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 31996. So let me tell you about Todd and Kim. Dr. Todd Saxton is an associate professor and Indiana Venture Faculty Fellow at the IU, that's Indiana University Kelly School of Business, and an award-winning professor of strategy and entrepreneurship. Todd has advised, helped launch, and invested in hundreds of startups. He serves on the board of multiple entrepreneurial ventures, and he has published numerous book chapters and articles on corporate and startup strategies, and he's the co-author of The Titanic Effect, the book that we're going to chat about today. His wife, Dr. Kim Saxton, has over 30 years of marketing and market research experience, working with large corporations, startups, and medium-sized businesses. Currently, she's a clinical professor of marketing, also at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business. Kim's research on market segmentation, branding, promotional strategies, venture success, and venture ecosystems has been published in numerous international academic journals. She also serves as an associate editor of the Journal of Advertising Research. Kim's also an active angel investor and advisor to high-potential startups, and she is the co-author of The Titanic Effect. So Kim and Todd currently live in the Indianapolis, Indiana area. Once again, Kim and Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks again for having us, and we're delighted to be here. Uh, th those intros may make us sound old, but uh, hopefully also wise. <laughs> That's right. And we'll go, we'll go with experience on that, right? Perfect. Absolutely. So Glad as we, yeah, absolutely. Good to have you. And, and as uh, we were talking, of course, and when you we first reached out to me, I was excited because both my daughter, McKenna Lopez, and her boyfriend, Colin Rhodes, are about to, graduated, about to graduate from the Kelly School of Business. So we're excited about that. And congrats and kudos to both of you, McKenna and Colin. Yeah, absolutely. that's a, a tough program to get into, a tough program to live. I hope they have an I Survived I-Corps t-shirt. <laughs> they do. They do. Yep. They both do. And I went through that. And my daughter, my daughter did a semester abroad last year in Milan and talk about timing, right? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> if it had been this year, she would have been shipped home and that would not have ended well. Right. The fates are in her favor. I know it. I know it. She had, she had a wonderful time. Yeah. They, they both have a, have had a wonderful experience at IU. So, so good. Wonderful. So let's start to where I usually start when we're talking about a book in specific, what uh, led you to decide to write this book? So as we've talked about, we have a lot of experience working with startups and primarily from the student perspective, but also alumni and our work in the venture community. 
and our research in the same area. And we, we tend to, across time, have started to see these patterns of, of why entrepreneurs are not as successful as they could be, and in some cases, even, even fail. And we felt that there's some opportunities to kind of capture things that you shouldn't do. So there's a lot of kind of glamorizing the entrepreneurial experience and uh, a lot of to-do books, right? You know, mm-hmm. do a lean startup, do a business model canvas, all of those things. And we're not saying those are not good things to do, but also along the way, founders and, and small business owners have to make a lot of decisions uh, without full knowledge and therefore can make some mistakes or can create some of what we call hidden debts that come back to haunt them. So helping entrepreneurs, helping uh, startup ecosystems kind of be more cognizant of, of those challenges, more aware and, and better able to navigate those challenges uh, was what really inspired us to convert our, our research and teaching into this book form. And he makes it sound so formal, but the way this kind of happened is we were doing some presentations. There's, you know, a lot of uh, startup activities and meetings and people get together and we did this presentation. And the second time we did it, somebody stopped us afterwards and said, oh, my gosh, that should be a book. Mm. Honestly, we hadn't thought about writing a book at all. And most of our writing is a lot more technical. And you probably wouldn't have enjoyed reading it as much. (laughs) (laughs) We assign it in our classes, so that gives you a clue. Um, So this was a real change for us to think about a whole different way to take the knowledge we've been creating and the patterns we've seen and get them out into the marketplace. And how did you land into that point also about, Kim, about the, you know, making it a good read about using the Titanic uh, analogy? How did you land on that? Well, we had actually started that in the presentation. And I have to admit that although I'm the marketer, Todd is the naming guy. And in part (laughs) that comes because from years of explaining how brand names come up and him seeing stupid brand names, (laughs) him saying, I think I can do better. And so when we started thinking about these problems, the, the problems come because you have to make a decision and you don't really know what the right option is. There's just a lot of uncertainty. So you make a choice and you move forward, but you kind of forgot about the trade-offs that happened Mm -hmm. and you forgot about the negatives that could come with this choice. And so we thought of this idea of like, you see what you see at the top, but you're missing this big thing underneath. And when you think about this big thing underneath, who doesn't think of an iceberg? And when you think about an iceberg, well, Todd tells this story better. Let, let him tell you why, how he got here. <laughs> well, yeah. So you start with that kind of hidden below the surface iceberg. You think of failure in icebergs. At least a lot of us think of the Titanic. So I was like, hey, when we did our first presentation, I know, let's call it the Titanic effect. And, and that was about as deep uh, as, as I got. Um, however, fortunately, and I'll turn it back to Kim to riff on the, uh, <laughs> the genesis to the realization of our title. So I'm the data person. I like numbers. I like science. I went to MIT as an undergrad. You know, I need the proof. And so I started doing some research and I started just seeing all these parallels. And here, this is the 1912. You've got a very famous and well-established company, the White Star, decided to do something new by creating this new, big, luxurious ship at a time when it was known for speed. And and it's like a little, you know, like a new innovation, a startup. And, and as each technical aspect that we looked at, marketing, human, technical, we just kept finding the exact same mistakes that we see today with startups. So we're like, oh my gosh, it's not just 
a cool name, but it's actually real. It's a real lesson we can learn from history. Yeah. It, and it's, uh, as you were saying that, and that's one of the things I loved about the book, it, it's kind of like, it's almost avoiding our human nature sometimes to <laughs> make those compromises and we don't realize what we're kind of creating for ourselves, the debt that we'll pay later. Right. Yeah. And, and also as, as Kim was suggesting, uh, the, these entrepreneurial challenges aren't new because of the internet or, or because of, uh, today's software, uh, some of the lessons go back even before the, the White Star Line and the Titanic getting built. We talk about Abraham Lincoln and, and some of the hidden debts he encountered with one of his startups uh, before he was president. So uh, there, there are historical lessons we can draw on and, and hopefully learn from and benefit from and, and make fewer mistakes as we move forward. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so that's, that's what a, one of the things I like about the book is you've interspersed that history. And like you said, well, as you dive into it, it's much more than just the iceberg analogy. Mm -hmm. It's all of those mistakes that they they made as well in uh, in building the Titanic. So, you know, what is talk about statistics and the data, some of the sobering stuff about businesses that I'll kind of share here from the book. As you say, just one out of two startups make it to year five, and 70% of all new companies fail by year 10. And a lot of that is because of this Titanic effect. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Some of the decisions that were made early that end up kind of coming back to haunt them. And, and sometimes it takes years for those really to surface and, and become real uh, and meaningful in terms of limiting the startup. But yeah, I mean, uh, creating a new business, whether you're wanting to be, you know, some uh, high potential startup or just even a family business it's hard. There's, you, you don't have the data, you don't have the money, you know, there's a lot of parameters that you don't have very many degrees of freedom and you still have to interact with the marketplace and find customers. And if you pick one customer that has some implications for other customers, you can't serve or you don't pick and you try to meet everybody's needs and then you're just a mess. Um, and so, uh, there, all these things interact. People forget that a decision made in one direction is going to impact decisions in other parts of the business. Right, right. And as you say in the book, so this is about, you know, the, the point that ventures, business ventures, small business ventures, the failure is nearly always a result of a series of errors that, that are not so obvious. And again, those problems, as you say, that lurk beneath the surface, hence the analogy to the iceberg. And how do we navigate those? How do we better avoid those is the whole concept. And then in the book, you break them up to what you call the human ocean, the marketing ocean, the technical ocean, and the strategy ocean. So I'm going to try to uh, dive into a couple of the points that stood out. Obviously, we can't cover the entire book. You need to get the book. But, but I want to touch on some of the things that stood out to me. But I thought we'd first start with this whole concept of hidden Debts, debts rather, not depths, debts, <laughs> hidden debts. And so explain that, introduce that, and then we'll dive into some more specifics on that. But what do you mean by hidden debts? So just that idea of constraints. And so I'll use an example from the Titanic because everybody seems to like those examples. But for example, they decided to have this very luxurious first class that would today cost about $100,000. And for $100,000, one of the things that you don't want to see are lifeboats out your windows and on your promenade, right? Right. And so they originally had lifeboats that for what was the expected capacity of the whole boat, and they took half of them out so the first class passengers wouldn't be bothered by them. So 
that's okay if you don't hit an iceberg and you need ice, lifeboats, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So that's the interactive effect that the choice of being luxurious caused a product change that then became a safety risk under duress. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what we say is because they eliminated the lifeboats, there's a debt there. That's right. You've created a debt unbeknownst to you maybe at that point, or you, you, you called it a compromise or something you had to have because it was the only way you're going to sell these hundred thousand dollar voyages, but you're going to pay that later. And in this case, obviously people paid with their lives to continue right. with the analogy. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it, you know, also led to, you know, the sinking of this ship too. Yeah. So that interacted with some other technical problems that they didn't think about or didn't know about because it was a brand new technology in how you built ships and also how you power ships. Right, right. Also one is come back to, to this idea with hidden debts that they are uh, typically non-financial. So a lot of us, when we think about debts, we think about kind of a balance sheet and cash flow statement. And certainly those are important and relevant to all businesses. Um, but particularly with small and, and new companies, a lot of the assets, a, a lot of the capabilities that you're developing are, are non-financial. They're based on relationships and expectations among key stakeholders like your co-founders, your investors, your early customers, et cetera. Uh, and, and it's hard to create kind of a tally for that uh, under a financial model. So that's why we thought it was important to introduce this notion of non-financial hidden debts that are the result of making decisions under uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. Good, and we'll talk about some examples, some real life examples as we go through this to kind of bring that to how does how would that apply to my small business that I'm either planning to start or that I have. You know, a couple of things that have popped into my head as I'm thinking about it from, uh, you know, I have some experience in, in building a software company. And so decisions you might make early on on features or so forth or rushing a product or bad choices from an architecture perspective could end up being a debt I have to pay later when I have to revamp the entire technology component of it. And that has a cost, but also a time component that's a hidden debt. Is that a good example? That's a great example. And our third co-author, Michael Corrin, is a software developer, and he always uses the example of, of a lean-to. Someone says, hey, we need to build something to get us out of the rain. Fastest thing to put up is a lean-to. Then you know, later on, someone comes back and says, oh, well, this lean-to needs a second floor. Okay, well, you can't put a second floor in a lean-to lean unless it has a foundation. So you have to scrap the lean-to and start from all over again. Mm -hmm. From our brick and mortar business, I can think of a situation where maybe you, maybe you got some really cheap space now and you took more space than you really needed and you right. might end up paying the price for that later, not just financially, but just in what it takes to manage and the perception maybe if you're not able to fill that space. So those, that's maybe another example of a hidden debt that I'm incurring now because I'm making compromises or overlooking things that I'm going to pay the quote unquote price for later. Right. That's a great one to translate to kind of brick and mortar and other types of enterprise where, for example, you don't necessarily know who's going to come to your brick and mortar establishment. Um, but as it turns out, they may live in another part of the city, another part of the town or, or uh, not be as familiar with that particular neighborhood or whatever. So you make a choice early on uh, based on just getting access to space and space you can afford that ends up maybe not being a good fit with who ends up being your target market. 
uh, and that would be uh, kind of a translation to hidden debt and uh, mm -hmm. brick and mortar kind of. Yeah. Well, well I have maybe... two examples along those lines I'd like to add. Yeah, so, absolutely. Absolutely. So we have a restaurant we like to go to in our favorite uh, ski town out in Colorado. And I just saw that they posted on Facebook that they had this office space for rent. And hmm. immediately people were posting, oh my gosh, when did you close? <laughs> Right. But they got the office space as part of the space. They didn't want to use it. So they were looking to rent it out and make money on that piece to cover mm -hmm. those costs. But now they have people thinking that they've actually closed. <laughs> or a different one I would tell you is one of our friends, a uh, restaurateur, the first restaurant that he opened, there was a space available. And, and so he took it. And he had to close that business after about a year because the kitchen was set up in such a poor way ah. that it was costing so much in operational expenses to manage the kitchen that he finally, after a year, said, "That's I'm done with it. So he even knew when he started that he was taking on this technical debt and he just lasted out the lease before moving on. So now he would, he's more cautious. He's like, all right, I'm not getting a space unless it has the setup I know I need for my system. Yeah. Yeah, great examples. Thanks for sharing those. All right, let's dive into the the human ocean component of it. So again, the book is broken up into these sections, and I love how you then summarize these little takeaways because it, it makes it good from a reading perspective, but also then as a from a reference perspective. So I love the way the book is laid out that way. Thank um, you. A couple of things that stood out. The first one, which I think is so important to talk about, is this concept of, as you say, Beware the founder or founders who has no passion for the problem the business solves. Not necessarily the business. I think that I think the wording here is important, but the but the problem that the business solves. And you you summarize this as PEP, P-E-P. -E Can you introduce that and explain that? Yeah, sure. So the passion, uh, experience, and persistence is the PEP model that we put together. And part of this is through our own research separately, but also uh, through a lot of anecdotes and a lot of discussions. And, and it seems to be that critical mix. So let's disentangle that. Uh, the passion, as you note, it, it's so important. Uh, the, the founder journey is very challenging and can be uh, very slow and depressing. The, the trough of despair you and some of your listeners might be familiar with when you, you hit those lulls that seem you, you just can't get out of them. And if you don't really care about the problem that you're solving, uh, you're, you're not going to be able to kind of tough through those, those times and really care enough to, to push through the adversity that a lot of startups encounter as we talked about those high failure rates earlier. Uh, so really believing in and caring about the problem that you're, you're solving on behalf of your customers in many cases uh, is really important. But to have a deep understanding of that problem and, and importantly, how to address that problem having at least some experience, and maybe that's gained through others if you don't have direct personal experience, other members of the founding team or advisors or mentors you bring on, but simply being passionate about something where your knowledge of and experience is, is kind of skin deep uh, is another big source of, of these hidden debts and, and can really keep you from even getting traction, uh, let alone kind of continuing. Uh, but then that, that persistence piece, so bringing uh, kind of circling back to You've got to be passionate about it, and you also have to be persistent in order to, to overcome the many challenges that, that you'll encounter along the road. One of the kind of corollaries to that that we do note, particularly with entrepreneurs who are passionate but don't have a lot of experience, uh, is that they're so committed to it and they're 
they're they're so passionate about the problem or particularly they're so passionate about their solution that they they're not really looking at how they're solving the problem anymore that they become almost unquotable and and blind themselves to feedback from the marketplace so if you think about kind of almost a u-shaped curve you you want a, a a high degree of passion but but not so much so that it blinds you to the realities of the marketplace yeah, yeah, well said. And I, I think, you know, this whole thing about passion gets talked about so much. And I we've talked about it on, on my show so many times, because there's so much that's made of it. What I like about this is that I may not, you know, sometimes I may not necessarily be the most passionate about the mechanics of the business, but I do have to be passionate about the problem we're solving for the customer or the client. So I like that focus of it. And then, and like you said, if, you, if that's not there, though, you're not going to get through the hard times is what I've found. Yeah, I can give you a great example. So we know someone who decided that they really wanted to own a franchise and they looked around and they found sort of the best franchise offering at the time. And it was a haircutting um, business. And this person honestly didn't have a lot of hair and also didn't really care much <laughs> about hair. <laughs> Um, but they bought it anyway. And then, of course, because it was the best financial was, decision, it right. had the best ROI right. among mm -hmm. franchise models. Mm -hmm. So, you know, now you're recruiting haircutters to help you be successful because obviously, you know, he wasn't going to be cutting hair himself. And I'll never forget, you know, the tax when he's like, when we wanted to do something on a Friday night, and he's like, oh, I'm watching updo videos on YouTube because <laughs> tomorrow I have a wedding coming in and no hairdressers. Wow. <laughs> Oh, he sold that franchise. I mean, yeah, no doubt. It's interesting because I thought where you were going to go with that, Kim, is he wasn't necessarily passionate about hairstyling, but that he enjoyed how people felt when they left. But it sounds like instead the choice was driven financially, not because he really had any desire for the business problem that it solves or the business itself. That was a major mistake there. Right. And so that you have to be asking yourself, I mean, sometimes people inherit a business they don't like, yep. or there was, you know, some random set of occurrences that got them into business that they don't really like. And being a, a, an entrepreneur of any size company is just so hard. It has to be something that you actually care about the outcome. Agreed. Agreed. That's what keeps you going after the sleepless nights worrying about how you're going to make payroll or how you're yeah. going to pay the bills. It You have to have, you know, we talk about it different ways on this show, your why, your business is why, your passion, whatever you want to call it. If there's not something you're working towards, if this is not part of a bigger thing that you're trying to get to, then it's it's not going to be worth it. Nope. All right. Another thing that stood out that's a really tactical thing, but but I'm so curious about this is never split equity 50-50. And I agree with you. So I I do most of my businesses have been partnerships of some sort, this particularly with my partner David Begin. And we have had this discussion and we've had this discussion with attorneys. We even got some advice one time about from an attorney who believed you should always be 50-50 because his point was you're gonna have to make a decision. But I don't agree with that. I agree with you guys that 50-50, that you should avoid at all costs. Absolutely. And, and the other that you see is what we call the curse of thirdsies, that three people kind of sit down and say, hey, you know, we'll split equity a third, a third, a third, when the, they're at the very beginning of uh, their journey. So kind of two lessons there. One, splitting equity 50-50 means there's, there's no one who ultimately is the final decision maker. Uh, and, and you can have a split in terms of 
equity, revenue, whatever, that's exactly down the middle. If you have an operating agreement that spells out that one person has the ultimate decision-making power, uh, i.e. more than 50% decision-making power, uh, even if the, the equity is split 50-50, um, but I, I would say that there, there always should be one person who ultimately is kind of accountable. And we give some examples in the book, uh, Gary Erickson at, at Cliff Bar, for example, who had formed a 50-50 venture that led to the uh, really the sister company being Cliff Bar. Uh, and then subsequently, years later, when it came and there was an opportunity to sell the business, he didn't want to, but his 50% partner had every right to sell. And uh, it created a, a nice $60 million uh, debt burg for him, which is yeah. <laughs> a lot of cliff bars, right? right. Um, well, I heard a story recently from someone who was, they were 50-50 and they had pitched for venture funding. So this is a, you know, a, a venture backed business and everyone rushed up afterwards and said, oh, you did such a great pitch and, but nobody funded them. Hmm. And like two years later, when he is on to his next business, someone told him, well, you did that pitch and you split the pitch evenly. Both of you were up there talking. And the reality is we didn't know who was in charge. Mm. If you can't figure out who's in charge enough to pitch, then how are you going to figure out who's in charge enough to make decisions? Yeah. Great insight. Great insight. Yeah. And I, and I love the clarification to Todd on, uh, you can split the revenues or the profits 50, 50, that's okay. But ideally it works best and you've seen it and I've seen it when one person can overrule and say, no, we're going to do this. And, and that again comes back to that making decisions under uncertainty, right? And, yeah. and uh, people will have different uh, both tolerance for that uncertainty and also because the, the outcome is not certain, uh, different opinions and you need one person who's just going to say, look, it's uncertain. And yes, this might be the wrong answer, but we're, we're going to make a choice and move ahead. Absolutely. So I think that one of the things that happens is sometimes people feel like they don't want to get attorneys involved. And, mm. and I think we advocate for getting an attorney involved in the early formation of your company. I mean, yeah, you can go online and get some stuff, but you actually want somebody who's going to ask you these kinds of questions and they should be asking you these decision-making questions, the ownership question, the payment questions. And honestly, most of the time we don't ask those questions of each other because it makes us feel uncomfortable. So let the attorney be the bad guy who brings up all the difficult things at the beginning. Couldn't agree with you more, Kim. I talk about that all the time on the show. In fact, I have one of the things I recommend, and you can download it on the show notes page for this episode, is what I call a memo of understanding that helps yeah. guide that conversation. And then, like you said, if there's more than one person involved, you've got to then boil that down to an operating or partnership agreement that an attorney has to draft for you. Yeah. This is Henry Lopez briefly interrupting this episode to invite you to schedule a free business coaching consultation with me. I welcome the opportunity to chat with you about your business goals and offer the guidance and accountability that we all need to achieve success. As an experienced small business owner myself, I understand the challenges you are experiencing and often it's about helping you ask the right questions to help you make progress towards achieving your goals. Whether it's getting started with your first business or growing your existing small business, I can help you get there. To find out more about my business coaching services and to schedule your free coaching session, just visit thehowofbusiness.com or simply text the word bizcoach, that's B-I-Z coach, to 31996. 
All right. So that's the human ocean. There was a couple of things that, that, that I wanted to chat about. Let's move on to the marketing ocean. And the big thing I want to talk about, because it's, you know, I, we talk about this a lot. It seems obvious, but I see people continue to make this mistake, even myself sometimes, which is that, that need to narrow your focus, to not try to say, I, my product or service is for everybody. So just share some thoughts on that, how important that is, that if I don't do that now, I'm going to pay the price for it later. Yeah, so this is about finding a place to get traction and to get easier penetration or what I like to call efficiency and effectiveness. So efficiency means you can spend less money and effectiveness means you get a higher conversion rate. And to do you be able to do that, you need to deeply understand the problem that customers have. And we know that people have different problems. I mean, you can't pick any kind of a product area or service offering or anything and say that every single customer that walks in the door has the exact same needs. They don't. And so when you try to manage all of those different needs, you end up managing none of them. Mm -hmm. And what you want is a group you can win, a group that loves you, that you are absolutely perfect for. And sometimes that can be pretty narrow, but that'll be rich enough to make your business move forward so that you can figure out how to expand over time. I mean, we have a, a lookout and our lookouts in the book are like red flags and those very words, oh, everybody could use our product is a <laughs> giant red flag, meaning that they don't really know who can use their product. Yeah. And I, I equate it also to the kind of resistance to starting small. Right. Yep. And part of that is I think you, you both touched on it, but Todd, you touched, you touched on it early on. We, we are bombarded with these examples of huge successes. And we think if we don't shoot for that, then, then we're not going to be successful. And I think maybe that's, that's wherein lies some of the hesitancy to start small, not just from a focus on your market, but also your physical or virtual footprint starting small. What are your thoughts on that? Right. I, one of the startup uh, pharmaceutical companies I worked for, I really loved that the president put it, well, we're going to be small, but look big. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and so we were very cost effective. We, you know, we bought our ingredients and, and allotments. We were very uh, cautious about how we spent money. But we did spend on our branding. We wanted a really strong brand that emotionally connected with people. And it was that whole idea of we want to look more sophisticated than we might actually be back here. Um, and I advocate for that too. It, you know, start small from how much quantity you think you're going to do to how far your outreach was. A couple of um, examples I, I often love to give, and people don't even remember this about PayPal, but PayPal had to have a major pivot in that their first customer that they targeted was um, people who had Palm Pilots. And their idea was that you could just bump money from one Palm Pilot to hmm. the other. Well, you know, it turns out that you could just hand money to the, each other. <laughs> well, you, didn't, you didn't need the device. So they actually stopped and said, who needs to get money to strangers over distances? And that turned out to be power sellers on eBay, which at the time there were only 20,000 of these. So depending on the size of your business, you could say, oh my gosh, there's 20,000 of them. Or you could say, oh my gosh, there's only 20,000 of them. But imagine if you could convert 40%, 50%, 80% of those 20,000, you're talking about a lot of volume. If you could even convert 
500 of those, you're still talking about a lot of volume. And that's what they set about to do. And that's why eBay bought them, right? Because that was exactly what they're, in order for eBay to work, it needed PayPal. Right, right. Yeah, great examples. And also, it also speaks to, as you mentioned, and you talk about in the book, this, uh, how, how do I differentiate myself? And it's so much harder to differentiate yourself when you're trying to be everything to everybody. Yeah. Another example we, we reference in the book uh, is TRX and Randy Hetrick. If you're not familiar with TRX, it's those exercise straps, uh, typically yellow, and uh, you can do a lot of different types of exercise with them. And, you know, early on in the life of a venture, we often call it uh, in, in the startup phase, the we can also. Uh, and if you think mm -hmm. about that product and you go back historically, there's the we can also sell it to people who want a home gym. We can also sell it to YMCA's and fitness centers. And we can also sell it to sports teams at various levels. If you tried to sell that product early on to all of those markets, you would have very quickly exhausted your resources. Uh, what Randy was able to do is to focus on the professional athletes uh, and particularly the NFL. He got great traction with Drew Brees. Here's, here's an IU guy giving kudos to a Purdue <laughs> alum. I know, right? Um, but, you know, he was uh, recovering. Drew was recovering from uh, labrum tear, shoulder surgery, and had a miraculous recovery in part using the TRX strap. And, and uh, you know, fast forward a year, a year and a half, and the TRX system is in 90, 95% of professional sports teams, primarily NFL and then others. Uh, so by having the tip of the spear be really at the, the top of uh, the echelon, if you will, in terms of power users, uh, literally and figuratively, uh, that made it so much more credible uh, and, and scalable to go then to those other markets. Uh, so having that kind of order effect is another piece of that focus where you do understand that ultimately you want to go beyond maybe that, that narrow segment, but you have to get traction and penetration in that narrow segment before you can then bring more resources to bear uh, to grow into other segments. Right, right. Agreed. All right, let's move on to the the technical ocean and a couple of things that stood out here. But you say in there, hide the solution until you've exhausted conversations about the problem. Uh, tell me about what you mean there and why that's so important. Sure. So the an initial kind of part of that is particularly technical entrepreneurs become so enamored with, we, we talked about this with regards to passion, be passionate about the problem. Many mm -hmm. tech entrepreneurs, particularly, or, or product entrepreneurs are, are so wedded to their solution and so enamored with their solution that they rush to the customer saying, look at the solution we have before they even understand what problem the customer has. And very importantly, how they're currently addressing that problem. Uh, so what you want to do is be able to kind of get in the customer's head, if you will, understanding the job that your product is or service is accomplishing for them. And if you're rushing in with a solution first, you're going to kind of bias or predispose them toward your own perspective, how you see the problem and, and particularly your solution uh, without a, a full understanding of what your potential really is and, and particularly how they might adopt or use your solution. And here's how we know when that's happened. And we've seen this way too many times. People go out and talk to customers with this solution and they come back and go, oh my gosh, everybody loves it. It's just amazing. Yeah. Then you ask, well, how many sales do you have? Did, mm -hmm. did they sign letters of intent? How much are they willing to pay? 
oh, oh, it's not right for them right now. It's a great product idea, but it's not, it's not there. It's not their time yet. Yeah, it's, that's so dead on. And as, as you were explaining that, both of you, I, I'm feeling the pain because I, I've made that mistake, right? Because not only, not only do you predispose or kind of influence what they think about it, but but you hear what you want to hear on it is your point as well, Kim, right? So yeah. we're telling you everything we want them to tell us because nobody wants to tell us, oh, it's, it's beautiful. I may never use it, but you didn't ask me that question. You You asked me how pretty my product is but then they don't use it. And that's because they really didn't address the problem that they really have. Right. So one research firm I've worked with, and I think this is a really good technique and I, I try to employment. I'm not always perfect at it, but is that when you're listening to feedback, you don't listen, you write down everything they say. And so then later when you go to talk about it, you actually have to find quotes that support your idea. I see. And so what happens is when we're so busy listening and processing, you're right. We hear things that support what we thought. Mm -hmm. But if you actually were almost typing verbatims, you can't find words that actually mean what you thought they meant. Mm -hmm. So related to this in there, you talk about avoid going straight from back of the napkin uh, concept to MVP. And I was a little confused by that. Because I thought, you know, that's, that's the whole idea is let's start with a mock-up, an MVP, but I think we're defining those things differently. So clarify that for me, if you would. Yes, and that's a, a great point and distinction, and we credit uh, Michael Cloran for, for bringing a lot of insight to that. Uh, but if you think about what an MVP, ideally minimally viable product, I, ideally does, it's the smallest kind of configuration of functionality that a customer will pay for. So if you're giving your MVP away, it's not really an MVP. Uh, you should have an MVP that a customer is paying for or, or is willing to pay for. So what a lot of entrepreneurs, whether it's, it's software, uh, so an example would be moving from, you know, kind of the sketch of the napkin to minimally functional software, which might cost you still thirty to $50,000 to have an app on a phone that works and connects to whatever, the internet APIs into something, even if it's really rough and ugly and there's not great user interface, et cetera, that's still a considerable investment to get to before you actually put it in front of a customer. Whereas if you created a PowerPoint deck with some wireframes that says, here's what your screen's gonna look like when you hit this button and you have a hot link and then the next page pops up, you can do that in two or three hours in your dorm room, in your garage, in your office, right? You can mock that up put that in front of a customer and find out that they'll say, oh, I never, I never do that on my phone. I actually use my, my PC to do that. We have a, a live example, a, a health IT company we work with where they had uh, some great functionality mocked up in this fashion uh, on a, a mobile device that involved both physicians as well as nurses. Well, as it turns out, nurses wouldn't do any of the scheduling and, and some of the functions on a, a mobile device so that startup was was able to create that functionality actually much less expensively and much more efficiently uh, for a, a PC uh, kind of interface. Um, so having that intermediate step can can really save you a lot of money in the physical space. Uh, kind of more the the hard hard copy pro, uh, prototype. Mm -hmm. We give this example in the book. Uh, an, an entrepreneur, I think, it was Bulgarian uh, entrepreneur, so. if I recall, uh, who. Uh, was had this idea to take for driving games 
And instead of having your phone as the central kind of device uh, to have an iPad or, or tablet kind of device and invested $50,000 to mock up, you know, just, just a prototype to then use for Kickstarter, et cetera, and then got the feedback from the market that we've never, uh, we wouldn't pay for that basically. Yeah. Like the idea, it's cool, but we're not going to invest in it. So um, having that intermediate step, even if it's duct tape and, and cardboard, just to put it in front of a customer and get feedback can be really important. Or the way I like to put it, Henry, is this. Let's say that you want to build a house and you get a carpenter out to your site. Do you just say, hey, here's what I think it ought to look like on the back of a napkin. Can you just go build that? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't. You'd want plans. You'd want to know all this, what all the square feet in each place is. Where is it going to be vaulted? Right? Yeah. Yeah, great, great examples. And, I, I, you know, I think through the software example, because I've been through it, as you, as you might be able to, to deduce, is that if you once you have sunk in that 40, 50 grand, whatever it is for what I'm calling an MVP, again, it's the, that hidden debt, not just the money that I've sunk, but I'm, I've invested so much into this being the solution that again, I'm only going to look for the things I want to hear and I'm going to move forward. And then the end result is going to be something nobody wants to pay for. Right. In some right. cases, sadly, yes. Yeah, in some cases, I know. All right, let's move on to the strategy ocean, which is the last of the oceans that the book is broken up to. And and um, so the, what a note I wrote down is does not overly focus on one ocean more than others. And, and this relates to the, the iceberg index checklist. So why don't we introduce that tool? Because I think it was a really functional tool as I was going through it and how you envision people using this iceberg index checklist, which is available by free on the web, for free on the website. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, to be more technical, there are like 32 icebergs that we have in the book. Obviously, we're not going through all of those. But what we didn't want people to think is that we are sitting here saying, oh, you can't do this, and you can't do this, and you can't do this. I mean, you will take on some of these debt. You have to make these choices. So the purpose of the book isn't to tell you not to make these choices and not take on these debts. It's to make it so it's obvious that you have these debts. And so we created the iceberg index kind of like a FICO score. I mean, we all get our credit scores from time to time and they tell you like when you're going up and down, but that's what this is intended to be. Just checklist of like, do we have these things? Because if we don't have these things or if we have made these bad choices, then what we need to do is be aware of them, look at them, and be able to come up with plans to mitigate them. We actually have a two by three um, maps with Velcro and little red and yellow icebergs that you can put on the, the, the 32 icebergs to say, you know, what are we paying attention to now? Um, so that was kind of the idea there. Yeah. And the reason that we said don't overly focus on uh, one ocean over the others. We often like to use the Theranos example. I'm sure you're familiar with Theranos these days. Yes. But here was a company that put all of their effort into the customer or the market ocean. So they actually had paying customers um, where people were literally getting tests made, but they didn't have a viable product. And so eventually people figured out they didn't have a viable product. And that means that they wasn't giving accurate test scores and that they couldn't really replicate it. And so they should have taken some of the effort from market development and, and put more into getting a better actual functioning product. Um, and that, that's a pattern we see where either there's a lot of time and money put on the products, so you have a perfect product and no one to buy it, 
or there's a lot of money put on the customer and you don't actually have a product that the customer wants to buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and again, to this point also, uh, as you talk about in the book of not focusing overly on one of the oceans is if let's just say I, my background is technical or that's my forte, I, this helps me to make sure I'm looking at those other potentially unforeseen hidden debts that I'm getting myself into trouble. And now, now that can get that, obviously the book and the checklist helps, but it could be because I partner or I get help in those other areas that I may not be strong in, right? Yes, very good. Absolutely. It is shocking how many founding teams, particularly in tech startups we see are, you know, tech, 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 no marketing, no sales. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) That has this great thing about the three guys you need to have or gals. Yeah, the, the, the three H's, right? You need the, the hacker, that's the technologist that likes to play around with software, product, whatever it is, the engineer. The, the hipster, that's the person with the good hair who can sell it to investors and <laughs> other stakeholders. And then the hustler, that's the person who uh, gets out there and sells it and understands the tricks of marketing and, and selling and is willing to kind of invest in that those types of activities and, and most successful startup teams need some combination of those capabilities. It doesn't have to necessarily be three different people, right. but it's pretty tough to have one person pull off those three uh, types of roles. That's right. No, I agree. And, it, and again, if that's not part of your uh, equity holders, you, you can partner for that. You can get help for that. It doesn't have to necessarily be one of the owners of the business that has those three things, right? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, let's start to wrap it up. You you talk about the the number one, as you call them again, debt bergs or these hidden debts that I might be creating for startups. The number one that you see that's common, share that with us. Well, we talked about this earlier. We have this really elaborate grid that's like the number one debt berg in each of these oceans at each stage. It's very hard to say. I, of course, as being a marketing person, I'm going to pick something in the marketing ocean. <laughs> But where mine really comes from is the idea of scalability. Selling is hard and to figure out how to do it at scale is the most important thing, which in my mind gets back exactly to the issue that you uh, honed in on, which is if you don't know who the right customers are and you can't figure out how to sell them, you're never going to scale sales. So so avoiding creating that hidden burden of I'm going to try to sell to everybody or this huge market, that's really hard. Hence why if I focus, I'll have uh, more likelihood of succeeding and selling to that, that tightly narrowed niche to begin with that is the fan of what I have to offer. Yeah, because really, ultimately, you do want to expand that. Of course. But if you can't figure out how to sell into even one group, then you can't figure out how to sell more broadly. So that's, you know, the goal is scalability, but it starts by being very narrow and focused to a place where you can get really great traction. Mm-hmm. But I think Todd has a different idea about the number well, one. Well, of course, he's the marketing prof <laughs> where, uh, you know, I'm the strategy guy. So I, I would come back to one of the uh, strategy debtbergs, as we call them. Uh, and it's really kind of, I'm going to bring in a combination of the two. So I'm probably cheating here. Um, but but first of all, it's that integration, right? That That your product development team is constantly interfacing with your marketing folks and they're feeding information on what customers want and and there's interaction between those so you're not kind of approaching the business in as if each of these oceans is a silo the whole idea of the strategy ocean is you need this discussion and coordination uh, across these different other oceans of the technology piece the people piece uh, and the marketing uh, including competition as well as customers Um, 
But the secondary element to that is that you have to have some metrics, that you have to start by setting up a system for understanding not just where we are today, but are we navigating uh, in the right direction? And that, Kim mentioned, the map that we, we like to see the Titanic effect in the Iceberg Index operationalized visually in this map that you can put up on the wall and have employees kind of put a red pin in saying, I think, I think we've got an emerging iceberg here that we need to address. Mm -hmm. uh, so having discussion about that and having some understanding of the early warning metrics that can, can be a little bit more predictive instead of saying, damn, we didn't hit sales this quarter or, uh, you know, we're, our burn rate is, is running too high, so we're going to run out of cash too soon. Uh, those should all be uh, able to be anticipated if you set up the right metrics from the start. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Thank you for that and for summarizing that. So let's uh, wrap it up here. Begin to share with us uh, again, what, what action do you want us to take and our listeners to take? We've been talking about the book. Again, the book is called The Titanic Effect, Successfully Navigating the Uncertainties that Sink Most Startups. So tell us about what else we can find online and what action you'd like us to take. Sure. Well, obviously we're, we're both uh, Kelly professors and, and, uh, consume education. I would say a, a lot of people, I think, feel that entrepreneurship is something that is learned through hard knocks and, and can't be taught. But whether it's our book or, or other resources, there are things that you can learn uh, through a combination of experience and education that can really kind of help you along uh, your journey. Uh, we hope you'll take the action, obviously, of, of buying our book, perhaps, uh, or at least exploring some of these concepts. Uh, we have a blog, and you might want to look at some of the specific uh, blog topics that might be relevant to you and, and be helpful to you in your decision making. Uh, but we're hoping that your action uh, among your listeners is that uh, they can be more successful in whatever their endeavors are. Uh, also, as a secondary, if any of you are interested out there, uh, feel free to reach out to me at Todd at TitanicEffect.com. And that email will come directly to me and I promise to respond to you. Uh, and would love to hear your own iceberg stories, things you're wrestling with. And if I can be at all helpful, uh, giving you some kind of suggestion or pointing you to a part of the book that might be helpful, uh, please feel free to do that. Uh, this, this is a new effort. We're experimenting with this. We haven't done this with other audiences. So been on a number of podcasts, but uh, uh, this is the first one where we're, we're going to try and experiment with this opportunity. And I hope at least some of you out there uh, get in touch even to say, hey, you're full of whatever. Uh, <laughs> or that was kind of cool. And we yeah. enjoyed it. No, I'm sure you will. And we'll, we'll have that, that how to find you in all of those links will be on the show notes page for this episode as well. So I encourage people to take you up on that because I agree with you. I, I'm very much the uh, of the philosophy that you just got to do it. But I also uh, believe that one of the ways as entrepreneurs that we mitigate risk is by proper preparation and planning and learning and education before we, we make that move, right? So Absolutely. Like, it is navigation, right? It's not mm -hmm. just launching your boat into the ocean and then laying down and seeing where the waves and, and tides carry you. Right. Uh, and being part of actively navigating is learning from other sailors who have been in those oceans before you. Agreed. Great, great way to put it. All right. Besides your book, is there a book that comes to mind in light of the conversation that we've had that you would recommend? So I, um, I do like the Heath Brothers books. And one in particular I think is really helpful for small businesses is Made to Stick. Um, they do a nice job of summarizing a lot of the work we know in advertising effectiveness. And if you can apply their success formula, um, I guarantee your communications are going to be more persuasive. So check that one out. 
I've got a, a, one of my favorite authors is Steven Johnson. And uh, one is How We Got to Nail, and he traces six innovations, including refrigeration, for example, and light, and uh, how they have over time changed uh, society. And that's a really fascinating and a great read, uh, not maybe as pertinent to a specific startup or things you're working on, but uh, just general info. But one of his more recent is called Farsighted, and it talks a lot about making decisions under uncertainty and mm. those farsighted decisions, decisions that have long-term ramifications. And I think a lot of our mental models in terms of how we approach things are, are very similar, but it, uh, is, it really nicely goes into complex decision-making and some of the tools to use uh, to, to do that better. Yeah, great recommendations. Thank you. I've read Made to Stick, Kevin, one of my favorites, but have not read the, your two recommendations, Todd. So thanks for those. We'll have all three of those, including uh, Kim and Todd's book on the show notes page of this episode. All right, we'll wrap it up. What's one thing you want us to, to summarize with and to take away from this conversation we've had about navigating uncertainty? One thing you want us to take away? Well, I would say particularly right now, you look at financial markets and, and you look at the uncertainty that surrounds us and, and the fear that accompanies that, and it can be debilitating, but recognize that there are tools for navigating this uncertainty. Uh, if it's not reading it in a book, it's getting out and talking to other people in your network, advisors, mentors, colleagues, uh, share with others what your concerns are, uh, and, and venture ecosystems are, are made strong by people reaching out, helping each other, learning from each other. And we find in many of the communities we've had the opportunity to visit that uh, folks are just really open and, and really helpful and want to support each other. Uh, so don't think you're alone out there. And there are tools to navigate the uncertainty that uh, uh, uncertainties that many of us are facing today. Anything to add, Kim? Um, I think he's got that right. Uh, one thing that we didn't talk about much that I think we sometimes do is that we want to contrast risk with uncertainty. So risk, um, you know, there are known probabilities and known outcomes. You know, you're going to roll dice. We can get the, uh, we know what all the outcomes on two dice are, unless, of course, you have 120 sided dice. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we know what the probabilities of those outcomes are, but uncertainty is we, we don't know what all the possible outcomes are and we don't know the probabilities of them. And so learning to deal with uncertainty is very different from learning how to deal with risk. Some of us are more risk takers than others, but um, systematically thinking about the business, scenario planning, getting that advice from others, it'll help you categorize that uncertainty and, and make plans that can reduce the risk inside that uncertainty. Yeah. Thanks for that from both of you. That's, that's what, again, key takeaway for me from, from reviewing the book and the conversation is, again, as business owners, whether you're planning to start a business or you have a business, that's, that's part of our responsibility is trying to navigate these uncharted waters because we can't predict everything. But if we, if we go about it methodically looking into these different areas, we are more likely to predict and uncover these things that can hurt us later. And so that's, I love that, that uh, perspective. And I, that's a key takeaway for me. Yeah. The most common thing we hear after someone, particularly small businesses reads our book, they come back and they say, well, I have a list and <laughs> I wish I had read this like two years ago. Or where were you <laughs> two years right. ago? <laughs> exactly. All right. Tell us again where you want us to go online to find out more. 
So hit the website, www.titanicaffect.com. You'll find some downloadable tools, some podcasts. We'll have the, the podcast link up there uh, where we're speaking. So we do some live workshops and check it out and let us know what you think. Wonderful. All right, Kim and Todd, thank you so much for taking the time to be on here for your patience with the technical issues that we had getting started for sharing your knowledge. I really appreciate it. And thanks for being with me today. Thank you so much. It's been a, a great conversation. I hope your listeners get some value out of it. Yep. Thank you. My pleasure. This is Henry Lopez. And thanks for listening to this episode of the How of Business. My guests today were doctors Kim and Todd Saxton. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at our website, thehowabusiness.com, or just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 31996 to receive more information. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.